I've come to realize, I didn't really beforehand, that one vital thing that Marxism and Christianity have in common is that they're both tragic ways of seeing, not in the sense that they both believe will come to a sticky end, on the contrary. You know, in that sense, they're both full of hope. But they think that to get there demands an enormous self-dispossession or collective dispossession, if you like. You know? And the question is, um, the question between Marxism and Christianity is, is that something we can achieve politically, historically, or is that demand on us so deep does it runs does it cut so deep that in the end it could only be a kind of, by a kind of gift that we will be able to dispossess ourselves sufficiently they drove me up the hills thomas i am the man to make me carry the cross thomas Welcome everyone to this episode of The Popular Show where James and I were lucky enough to go back to some of our kind of, not just academic roots, but sort of political and, I don't know, in, I don't know how to describe these roots, but, you know, part, part of our history of engaging with politics and theory and everything really, um, where we spoke to Terry Eagleton, and, you know, this Marxist critic taught himself by Raymond Williams, which is also the story of our friendship in some ways, because we met, well, I think I had just one, I don't know about you, you probably had more, because I think I came on the back end of Eagleton's um, Manchester career, but I had just one lecture from Terry Eagleton uh, in 2007 um, as a second year or first year undergraduate, which is just just slightly before uh, I met you and we became friends uh, in exactly this kind of Manchester academic circle of people who wanted to be on the left. Mm, yeah, yeah, that's right. You, you mentioned in the interview the, the Marxist reading of Bar Bar Black Sheep that he would give first year undergraduates. Can you remember what that was? Do you know what? I, I, do you know, I don't remember what it was, but I do remember thinking it was shit. But then, like, approaching my third year and I was, when I was exposed to more m what Marxism actually was, because I think I was quite an unpoliticised uh, English literature first year student. I only did English literature because I was less, least bad at that at A-level. Um, mm -hmm. So I was arriving there with no sense of politics or anything. And I remember very early on having that Eagleson lecture on Marx. Um, and, and actually, I have a specific memory of um, uh, if, if Simon Anderson or Tim Maynard are, are listening, um, <laughs> which they definitely aren't. Um, I remember saying to those boys uh, after the lecture, what a pile of bollocks, because, you know, it's Baba Black Sheep. I wanted, I think I wanted highbrow stuff instead of that. You know, it's only with reflection that I'm able to see that actually that, that was the Marxism we needed. Uh, to look at sort of everyday life and discourse uh, from that perspective, not, you know, yeah, so so it's part of, I suppose that's part of my uh, history of swinging from sort of, yeah, being interested in literature because it was bourgeois and clever and cool to realising that, you know, there's actually politics and theory to be thought about. Yeah, I think my first meeting with him was almost the the opposite where he he was speaking to an audience of postgraduates and he was describing um, the artistic scene at the start of the 20th century. Uh, and he, he described how like, all these different countries had these brilliant art movements and, and creatives and writers. And then he said, and the English had E.M. Forster. And this, <laughs> this was, the wit was obviously that, you know, Forster is a kind of 
unimaginative, unremarkable realist novelist uh, that reflects the unimaginativeness of the English. But of, of course, none of us knew that we were meant to think that E.M. Forster was anything other than a famous canonical novelist. So no one really got the joke. But he seemed amused by himself. Um, uh, by it. The, the other thing that happened in that seminar was a fire alarm went off and he just carried on speaking through the fire alarm, uh, through the fire drill. Oh, yeah. and, uh, I, I actually remember, I remember you telling me this story uh, probably yeah. about 13 years ago. So I don't, I don't <laughs> remember the rest, but carry on. <laughs> Let's see if my memory of it's the same. So the fire alarm went off and um, audibly people were walking through the corridors outside and Eagleton just carried on giving this lecture on pound uh, with all the little witticisms and um, and amusing asides uh, kept in and uh, all of us sort of looked at each other like well on the one hand you know do we want to be burned to death no on the other hand are we going to get up when Professor Eagleson hasn't uh, signaled that we should do so eventually Ooh. the security guards came in and uh, said what the hell's going on here and uh, Terry Eagleton claimed that he thought it was a car alarm going off outside the window <laughs> <laughs> I personally feel that this interview was really, uh, yeah, it's amazing, really. I think people will find um, Eagleton um, as as charming and learned as they would expect, but also um, remarkably generous and optimistic about the left today and about uh, the future of the left. Yeah, um, I agree, I agree. You've been someone whose career has, has a lot been about this intersection of literature and politics and essentially yeah. saying that the literary types must and always need to be politically engaged and, and seeing literature as a and politics as essentially inseparable. So it, it'd be good to hear from you about your career and your history, but also how it, yeah. how you came to this, this place of sort of yeah. seeing literature and politics as one and the same, really. Yeah, well, I think I, it is odd, isn't it? Or can it say it's interesting that um, literature is... Um, very attractive to vaguely left-wing types, you know. I wouldn't say that it necessarily attracts people who are already militant or, you know, thinking in sophisticated political terms, but it sure does um, provide a kind of home for people who are slightly dissident, both at the student level and at the teacher's level. One reason for that, I think, is, is simply because it doesn't have much of a payoff socially you know if you're going to have your tudor mansion in sussex you're not really well advised to read english you probably do business studies or whatever yes so the fact that um literary studies don't get you anywhere in a certain sense and obviously get you anywhere is part of what's radical about them i think that they you know to that degree they stand askew to the whole acquisitive, competitive climate of late capitalist society. And of course, one of their traditional roles has been that of critique, you know, precisely because they're not so intensively engaged in the business of running society, they're able to a certain extent detach themselves and operate as critique. And I think since romanticism onwards, that's largely been the or part of the, the major role of literary studies. Um, 
So they are a way in which um, people who... Uh, another fact about them, I think, there is clearly they're about imagination and creativity and those and therefore about values which are not, you know, greatly esteemed, if you like, by uh, public society. Once again, they don't get you very far you know, um, so that there are a number of aspects of literary studies which lend themselves to politicizing people. And I think that's been seen, that's been very strong over, let's say, the past century or so since, well, a, a high point here would be the Leavis group, scrutiny and therefore Leavis, the whole of Cambridge criticism, which I was a product. I'm, in fact, just about to publish a book on those critics. I, Richards, uh, Raymond Williams, William Empson, F.R. Leavis, and so on. They very centrally grasped the social significance of literature in um, a climate which they saw as increasingly culturally debased. You know, what they didn't do, however, was grasp the political causes of that debasement. The fact that, you know, the profit motive was riding roughshod over people's cultural experience. Um, and that was really for a later generation, maybe the generation of Williams and then of myself. So in all of those ways, I think surprisingly, in a way, because there's nothing very superficially obvious which would make literature, lend literature to politics in that way, I think it has been a consistent way of transforming people's you know, people's way of looking at things. And um, certainly I was at Cambridge as an undergraduate in the last days of Leafis, and I was, of course, a friend and student of Raymond Williams, where to be involved in literature was to be involved in what you saw as a centrally serious human and social pursuit. You know, And that broke with the kind of belletristic you know, sort of wine-tasting attitude towards literature, which had preceded it, which was very much on the right. You know, literature was, the humanities in general, were very much an enclave, a genteel enclave. Um, uh, you know, they, they were part of a gentleman's cultivation. So there was a kind of quiet revolution at that point, I think, of which really, in a way, were the, uh, were the later products. Could I just keep you in that uh, in that moment, and maybe the the transition into the 1970s? Um, you, you were part of uh, uh, the new left milieu that was uh, in the process of basically importing uh, a lot of French theory, some of it Marxist, some of it not, uh, into the English-speaking uh, uh, world. That that 1970s moment was really the kind of the crossroads for the the post-war settlements, um, the, the the kind of moment where it, it could either go further left with a, a sort of Benism or, or could go mm -hmm. to the right, as it did with Thatcher. We, we got mm -hmm. what I think is an interesting question from um, from our friend Paul Ewart when, when we said we'd be interviewing you, which was, what did you hope was going to happen back then? <laughs> I think the outbreak of theory, uh, particularly literary theory, cultural theory, was very much related, although we didn't really see this at the time, I think, but it was very much related to the general ascendancy of the left at the time. We're talking about the late 60s, particularly the early 70s, 
you know, um, a period where there was a kind of, let's say, leftist culture or leftist climate. It wasn't so that literary theory wasn't in isolation in that sense. And I think that, um, I don't know, what we were expecting was the left would be able to move forward in a, in a significant way. Um, it was, in that sense, a period of buoyancy and kind of hope, really. And theory was a certain kind of intellectual wing of a much wider movement. On the other hand, ironically, a lot of the theory really emerged from the failure of the left in terms of the rolling back of the student um, insurgency. You know, it's only really in the wake of 68, you know, the high point of the continental insurgency, that theory really takes hold. And so we were, in a sense, without knowing it, already dealing with a theory which in certain respects was rather pessimistic or was standing in for politics. What happened was that as political hopes began to fade through the 70s as the dark night of Thatcherism and Reaganism approached, theory became a kind of uh, holding operation. I think it became almost a surrogate for, you know, a transformation which really was faltering and losing its way. And it was doing that because, of course, there was a massive crisis of, of profits, which in turn meant a massive assault on the labor movement, uh, an attempt to smash the trade unions, a rolling back of insurgency. And that was then became the very unpropitious political environment in which we really you know, we really had to survive. By the 80s, things were pretty different. Something called postmodernism was emerging. And by the 90s, theory was almost on its last legs, you know? Um, and I think in that sense, I, I, would, I would see an internal relation between the affirmative and militant climate of the late 60s, early 70s, politically and internationally, and this outbreak of theory, which always happens when, you know, which always has deeper roots than merely intellectual ones. When you get a positive epidemic of theory on that scale, it's really, you know, a symptom. It's saying that there's something seriously awry. And one of the things that was awry, I think, was the question of the place of the humanities in an advanced capitalist society that really had very little time for them, you know. Um, I think there was a question deeper than literature, deeper than theory. It was what are the humanities to do mm. in this kind of society? And we've seen, you know, a, a sort of answer to that since, which is they don't really have any place. Mm. You know, they hang on by their fingernails. And um, we were, as it were, at the beginning of that, uh, of that process. I was fascinated by you describing how uh, in a period around the late 60s and early 70s, the left seemed to kind of territorialise um, theory as its discourse and push that into literary studies. Um, you know, um, and of course, that makes intuitive sense to me in the sense that, you know, bringing the Lacans and Deleuze's and Derrida's into the discourse uh, radicalises the space and and so on. But I, I was going to ask about how you see this now then, because obviously now we see um, literary departments and arts departments and human 
humanities departments, as you just mentioned, being kind of shut down, but not only from the perspective of funding cuts, but also often from the perspective of sort of, um, you know, um, well, polit from, polit from political angles, often it's those people on the left in those kind of arts and humanities departments who are kind of um, cancelled out or so on. Uh, and then obviously funding being increasing. So I wonder how you see, it's an interesting kind of trajectory because it's like those departments, I mean, perhaps you can just see if I've got this right, but those those departments, those, those humanities spaces became bastion of the left in a certain way. And they're now being replaced or shut down by a certain kind of contemporary capitalism. But um, I guess my question is, do you think they're being shut down from the right? Um, or, you know, because it was interesting to me that you said that they used to be on the right and then they were on the left. And that happened. Yeah. Do you think that the arts and humanities have been pushed out by the right or is capitalism and the this kind of liberal um, management of this of the university discourse another kind of enemy? It's it's not I don't know. Do you see what I mean? Who is shutting down the, the, the arts now? Yeah, well, I don't I don't think it's the right in the traditional sense of the you know, the kind of right-wing Tories. I think it is the system. It's the neo-managerial uh, revolution, as it were, within the university. It's a very reactionary revolution. Um, the logical extension, I guess, in the end, of, of business and managerial rationality into areas where they have very little place, you know? And that's what we've been witnessing in our own time, which is very different from the, from the earlier um, the earlier period I was talking about. Um, accompanying that has been, I suppose, the transition from a left which in some sense saw itself as revolutionary or deeply transformative to what you might call a postmodern left. Yeah? Still dissident in certain identifiable ways, but having lost the sense of a fundamental critique. I think that's part of what's been lost. Um, the literary studies should, or cultural studies, the humanities in general, that they should operate as as a critique is a very honorable and long tradition. You know, as I said before, it goes back at least to Romanticism. I think much of that has been lost. What, however, there are nonetheless, you know, tell a slightly more upbeat story, various continuities from the early period, notably feminism. You know, I mean, feminism was a massively important important part of that uh, political insurgency, that resurgence of left-wing politics again around the early 70s. Um, but as Marxism faltered um, for all kinds of political reasons in the later 70s and then with the, the end of the Cold War and so on, feminism provided, although going through various embodiments, to be sure, provided a certain, a certain element of continuity. Certain things have survived in that sense from the, from the earlier period. But we're also talking, of course, about a period in which capitalism itself was transformed. You know? um, we're talking about being in a post-industrial capitalist epoch. And once again, the humanities have to ask themselves, well, what, you know, how do they address themselves to that? What is, what is their niche within that whole system? It's interesting to hear you use the phrase postmodern left, um, because I think uh, the, the way in which that phrase is most commonly received today um, is actually with a, a, right, a right wing meaning, uh, a figure mm. On the, on the right today, such as Jordan Peterson, uses 
actually a, a very similar critique to that which could be found in uh, your your book from the early 90s, I think, on on uh, postmodernism, Perry Anderson's, um, uh, uh, Frederick Jameson's, this this Marxist diagnosis of postmodernism, um, mm. which on on the left, the the argument that that you made and uh, and others made was that postmodernism was providing a sort of retreat for a left which had become institutionally. Um, helpless and weak, uh, and was uh, therefore sort of escaping into a kind of um, a, a kind of uh, coping delusion. The, the right-wing version of that is that the left um, uh, uh, cunningly transformed themselves into postmodernists and therefore took over the entire um, culture. Um, I wondered though uh, um, that that um, th- that right-wing kind of appropriation aside, I, I wondered what you made of the recent sort of left populist experiment of Corbyn, um, Bernie Sanders, Podemos, Syriza, which we're now on the other side of. But when that was happening, did you see that as a kind of breaking out of that postmodern trap that uh, you'd, you'd witnessed the left back itself into? I did, and I still do in many ways, I think. I mean, I don't necessarily think those energies are exhausted. You know, they've taken a battering, um, but there's still an enormous amount of goodwill uh, behind that, uh, good intentions. One of the points about postmodernism, I think, relevant there, perhaps, is the um, transition to an overemphasis on culture. You know, I certainly see that as part of the left's political deadlock. A certain extent, when you know the left kept running its head against problems it couldn't really, really tackle, because the system itself was in a much more aggressive posture, particularly from the late 70s onwards. Certainly, during the 80s, with the kind of squalidly and openly acquisitive culture, you know, Thatcher and so on. In that situation, culture became. Um, in one sense, a deepening of traditional left concerns. In another sense, it became overemphasized, and a certain postmodern ideology you might call culturalism you know, began to emerge, which acted, as I say, as a sort of displacement of political issues. Um, obviously, culture is highly politicized, but I think it was a sign of a certain defeatism um that uh the discourse became so much about culture and so little in the traditional left sense about you know economy or the state or class or class conflict one example of that i suppose would be the post-colonialism which arose at the time which really no on the whole with some very honorable exceptions no longer spoke about uh, you know, the, the so-called developing world in terms of state and trade and imperialism and economy, but talked about hybridity and identity and plurality and language and so on. All of those concepts are very significant and vital. But I think that um, a materialist critique was what was really lost. As for the point about the right-wing appropriation, yes, I think, you know, I mean, one point I suppose to make is that there are bound to be, embarrassingly, uh, areas in which the right and left overlap, you know, in which they share. Uh, For example, if one looks at the um, 
at high modernism, largely launched from the political right, from an indeed darkly reactionary perspective in many ways, but often tremendously full of insight about liberal capitalism from the right wing, yeah, and in the absence of a concerted left-wing critique there. So I think one has to recognize that there are, to that extent, overlaps. I mean, conservatives don't like postmodernism, and neither do I, but for very, for very different reasons. Yeah, I, I, I think that, that, that question, that stuff about postmodernism and conservatism is really important. And um, I guess I wanted to ask you um, how you, because a lot of this conversation is um, based on the idea that structurally speaking, um, literature departments and humanities departments became, I suppose, um, incubating spaces, I suppose, for left wing thought and critique. And much mm. of what we're talking about is critique. Um, and that was certainly how it was for me, um, you know, uh, and what politicised me. So that, that rings very true. I, I wonder what you think about literature itself rather than literature as an academic discipline, uh, whether creative writing uh, has shifted its position. So, you know, li- li- literature, you know, oh, fic- fiction, fiction literature and creative writing has changed in its relationship to politics uh, from the 70s to now. Um, I think one of the reasons, yes, I think you were quite right uh, that, that literature and literary departments became incubators of radical ideas and to some, you know, some residual way that can still happen. Um, on the other hand, one of the more negative reasons for that, I think, that we shouldn't forget is that they weren't in a sense very important. You know, activities which are not directly locked into the system, you know, um, are going to be allowed a certain amount of free play. You know, because it's so the the very reasons that allow you to experiment and explore a bit in these rather kind of dissident areas, similarly, uh, can be reasons why the critique can't be very influential. Yeah. You know, because it's not it's it's partly from the margins of the system itself. So that's a, that's a perhaps a rather cynical, but I would say really realistic estimate of that capacity of literature to radicalize. You're right, of course, about the surge of creative writing. Very strangely, because um, you know, um, when I was a student and a young academic, uh, creative writing was universally scorned by particularly by literary academics, I think by academia in general, it was very much seen as a sort of debased American product, you know. It was an easy option and so on. Um, Once again, uh, of course, we mustn't forget that creative writing is highly profitable for literary departments. Um, And... um, but at the same time, it represents a displacement of creative energies which couldn't really work themselves out elsewhere, you know. And um, so, you know, to that extent, it keeps some of those energies alive and 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 to that and and is to be nurtured. Um, but it's a massive transformation of the landscape. And once again, I think the rise of creative writing to some extent is relatable to the decline of critique. Yeah? Um, at least as long as you're trying to preserve a criticism with a social dimension, yeah. you know, then that critique can just about survive. It's harder yeah. to do that when you spend your time writing poetry or fiction or whatever. No, I think that's, um, that's a really, really great and and it's what worries me about the way that our um 
academic disciplines are going because I think that yeah there there is so much of a stock placed now in in like the profitable areas of literary content production and criticism and critique has been reduced in in this kind of bizarre way where you know if you're writing on uh you know even if you're writing on very important historical author like Angela Carter or Charles Dickens or whoever it might be uh, there's this kind of inbuilt um, attitude in the university that those things are not legitimate only on the level of of, of critique you have to um, you know, justify the study of those 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 objects, I guess, those texts by saying that it's culturally relevant or useful or profitable in X, Y, Z ways. Um, and so I, I feel like, um, well, I, I, I guess I'm just agreeing. It's not, not so much a question, but I, I do feel like the 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 form of critique is being pressed out and i've kind of i've been guilty of this myself i did my phd on dickens and then felt very guilty about that because you know i think who gives a shit about charles dickens in the modern age so i migrated towards you know film and media and video game studies and things like that but like i think that the form of critique you know the idea of critique as a form uh, to understand like you know culture and and its products is is kind of important and it seems like that's being pressed and pressed and pressed out of university discourse um mm. i don't know if that's something that would ring true to you or you you disagree i don't know mm. no no i think that's absolutely right um you know we're talking about the transformation of society as a whole of of late capitalism we're talking within that framework of a massive and drastic transformation of the goals and purposes and structure of universities and then within that we're talking about the precarious and problematic role of the of the humanities i mean you know in one sense the fact that the humanities were never very easy to define uh gave them a certain sort of opportunity you know because the subject because literary studies has always had very blurred edges let's say um you know it covers everything from incest to iambics you know um from pentameters to whatever else alliterates with pentameters then you they, they continually could merge into other areas you know there were times when that became rather um so bred a certain delusory um sense of sovereignty as with the Levisites, you know, the English was the central touchstone of human civilization. But otherwise, I think the rather the lack of definition of the field, the lack of sharp definition, uh, was an advantage. Um, and the same in a way is true of culture, because it's very hard to define, you know. Um, so it's that still was a possibility. But as you say, the decline of critique, uh, the decline of the very idea that universities in themselves uh, constituted a certain ongoing critique of the social practices around them. I think that's been a very dramatic development. Um, it's the end of an enormously long tradition. I mean, just as literary criticism, in a sense, is a very belated child of the most, one of the most ancient forms of uh, intellectual discipline known as rhetoric and rhetoric was very much bound up with law and politics and society and so on you know just as criticism emerged from that as a less politicized version so um, uh, universities lost the notion of critique which goes certainly back to the early modern university you know, and, um, and and no doubt beyond that. So that's the situation in which now 
the humanities has to try and confront the question of its own uh, existence. Uh, I mean, the theory arose, I think, in our period when it was no longer possible to take that for granted. That was partly because, for example, whole new constituencies of students were entering higher education who wouldn't necessarily sign on for the given traditional consensus of opinion. Uh, so the sub subject had to begin to rethink itself. Our theory is, in my view, simply a kind of systematic rethinking of what it is you're doing. You know? um, but that question was de then immediately ran into, later on, the question of the, the uh, technocratic university ideology um, and made the question of what the humanities were doing around the place even more problematic, I think, than they'd been before. we get you on to spiritual matters um you've been you're, you're, you're well, an unusual figure in a certain sense james these are spiritual matters you can't let me go ahead with the spirit james yeah well you're you're um usual on the on the british left in having um, um it's uh, uh, an interest in Marxism uh, and uh, an interest in literature. That's not such an odd partnership with uh, an enduring interest in, in theology uh, and uh, your, your own uh, your own Catholic upbringing. So I, I, I wanted to ask about that. Um, I mean, not least because when I was a student uh, in the aftermath of the Iraq war, that was a moment where your... Christian background and that sort of Christian thread in your work actually took a kind of unexpected um, radical purpose because it, it became a, a, a very kind of effective way of criticizing the increasing authoritarian Islamophobia of British liberal intellectuals. This was the moment of your, your famous retort to Richard Dawkins, uh, and also your, your critiques of um, Martin Amis uh, and Christopher Hitchens and others. Um, so I wondered if you could say something about how you see um, the role of, I'll say theology, that you, 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 can, you can take it as far as faith if, if, if you choose to, um, in the history, in, in, in your thoughts, um, and also perhaps that, that specific kind of moment of what's coming up to 20 years ago of that particular moment of um, real authoritarianism in, in British liberal culture. Yes, the, uh, just at the point where Western society um, began to see itself as thoroughly secularised um, and knew um, we were suddenly back to religion because a new threatening form of religious authoritarianism, Islamism, reared its head. It was very ironic, just at the point where it seemed that all of that was now incompatible with modernity. Um, we put all that behind us. Uh, there were no, no grand narratives. There were certainly no religious grand narratives anymore. Um, then again, it, then it became, as it were, the great antagonist of the West 
post-Cold War, a new antagonist. Um, I'd, um, uh, I suppose, I don't know, I, um, you say it's unusual for a leftist to be interested in theology, it is. But when I was in my formative years, and going back to those, uh, not I hope too nostalgically, but to those years of the advance of the left in the early 70s, it was almost unheard of. You know, if you were interested in theology, they gave you a really hard time. You know, I mean, the left was basically militantly atheist. Now, one difference, I think, and one which I am grateful for is that that's not really any longer the case. You know, um, that's partly because, you know, these days the left can't afford to look a gift horse in the mouth, so to speak. When you're making advances, there are great, uh, clearly advantages to that, but there are also serious limits. It means you can be more intolerant. It means that you can um, afford to disregard other sources of knowledge, other ways of speaking, and so on. That's much, much less true now. Uh, if you think of some major left thinkers like, well, like, you know, Slavoj Žižek, uh, even Habermas to a certain extent, a number of others, uh, Badiou, um, all of them have written on theology. Um, partly, I think, because theology at least has this much in common with radical or revolutionary politics that it comes to very, very fundamental levels. I wrote recently, although it's not yet published, it's still on my computer, um, a sentence, I think it was rather like, um, maybe theology is now the only surviving area in which you can talk about love. Uh, what I meant by that was, of course, there are, you know, many, many places and rhetorics that speak of love, and texts and so on, but love in the specifically Christian sense of agape, that's to say, love which has very little to do with feeling or sentiment or romance or warm glows, but has all to do with social practices like feeding the hungry, caring for the sick and so on. It's, um, that is now a meaning which has almost been lost, which theology certainly has preserved and understands and knows about, but we have more generally a very debased kind of uh, romantic or erotic notions of love which simply won't serve politically, you know? Um, so I think that's certainly one connection between, between theology and politics. As for myself, I was, as you mentioned, James, I was brought up as a Catholic or an Irish working class background. Um, I don't, you know, I mean, there are so many disgusting facts about the Catholic Church that whether I would call myself a Roman Catholic is pretty problematic. But on the other hand, as a culture, I value I value it very much. You know, it, I, it, George Steiner once said about his Jewishness, he said that, well, you know, it's a club you, you don't resign from. Um, Catholicism, like Judaism, is a culture. It's it's not just a set of religious doctrines, and um, that has a very deep hold upon upon individuals. Certainly did upon me. Um, I was destined for the Catholic priesthood for a long time. Some people might say I've become a secular version of that. Um, oh, certain commitments, I think, just lay claim to you, and you find it very hard to walk away from, or impossible. What you can't walk away from is is what you are, is part of what you are, is utterly crucial 
to your identity. I mean, that doesn't mean to say, you know, that I believe some of the nonsense I was taught. Most of the theology I was taught at secondary school was utter garbage. And indeed, anybody who still believes that stuff, I would be very suspicious of. But I was lucky enough, I guess, just by a chronological quirk, to be a student at Cambridge when the Vatican Council was happening, when there was an enormous renewal going on of theology. And I met up with a bunch of guys who talked political and human sense about it. Um, and I then really never looked back. Theology went underground in my work for quite a long time. Interestingly and significantly, the time again when the left was on the ascendancy in my so-called Althusserian phase and so on. Uh, but once again, when you, when you, when the left, when anybody hits a kind of limit and failure uh, and defeat stare you in the face, that has certain advantages you can reap. You can certainly be more humble and you can listen to other people. Um, and you also, I think, begin to realize that there are limits to the political. Mm. I don't think, I don't think we, we believe that, you know, all those years ago. Um, kind of, you know, cliches like everything is political and so on. Um, but the political has its limits too, like anything else. You know? The political will not, I mean, you know, I hope, I pray, you know, it will massively transform society in terms of justice and, and equality and friendship. It won't, on the other hand, abolish sickness, it won't abolish death, it won't abolish tragedy. Um, I'm very interested in tragedy and have been throughout my work and, well, you know, um, Christianity, I suppose, looks beyond tragedy. Whatever that means, sees failure and defeat as um, places where horizons start to open, you know, not simply, not simply as dead ends. And that's been very important for me in my in my most recent work. I think one, I've come to realise I didn't really beforehand that one vital thing that Marxism and Christianity have in common is that they're both tragic ways of seeing, not in the sense that they both believe will come to a sticky end, on the contrary, you know, in that sense, they're both full of hope. But they think that to get there demands an enormous self-dispossession or collective dispossession, if you like. You know? And the question is, um, the question between Marxism and Christianity is, is that something we can achieve politically, historically, or is that demand on us so deep that it runs, that it cuts so deep that in the end it could only be a kind by a kind of gift that we will be able to dispossess ourselves sufficiently, you know, to then enter on something much different. Christianity, of course, argues that in the end, it's only by faith, it's only by a gift of God or by grace that that could happen. And, you know, secular socialists legitimately disagree with that. But I think that's an important argument to have. Life after tragedy, I think that's a, a really great message for the left to be meditating on uh, as we approach Easter weekend. You're right, yes. And um, 
Uh, I mean, I've actually written a book on hope some years ago. I don't know why, because I'm not actually temperamentally all that um, optimistic or hopeful, although hope is different from optimism. Um, but um, hope which emerges out of a, um, a realistic confrontation of how bad the situation is, that's a hope that has value. That's a hope you can do something with. Um, optimism, which really simply bypasses or turns its face from in a bullish spirit um, from the wreckage of history, is, is useless. It's no good to anybody. Um, but um, true hope, for me, must be tragic hope. That's to say, it must try and confront the Medusa's head of the situation in the knowledge, not that it will get beyond it by doing that, but that if it is to get beyond it, that's the only way of doing it. Lord, help me walk another mile, just one more mile. I'm tired of walking all alone. I think, Terry, obviously we, we've kept you up long enough, but, um, you know, honestly, um, as someone who... I was taught by or was lectured by you in in I don't know how long ago 2006 is but a pretty long time uh, and your work has always been so important and influential to me um and so it's been it's just been so lovely really to hear from you and and I think that these these points especially the last few the last discussion about Christianity and and the left and how this all fits together is just such important stuff for us to be thinking about now. So I, I really can't thank you enough for, for joining us and having this conversation. Oh, well, that's lovely of you to say so, Alfie. I, I, I enjoyed it. It was fun. I never thought I needed help before I thought that I could get by by myself Now I know I just can't take it anymore With an humble heart on bend the knee I'm begging you please help me Well, I, I recently wrote a, a note to Perry Anderson, my old friend, saying that I was deeply objected to the fact that I think he's now 82. His hair is still, is still yellow. You know, it's still fair. And he certainly wouldn't tie it. I know that for a fact, you know. <laughs> ah, you know, as a grizzled brigade, just really, you know, deeply resent that kind of thing.